This morning we're going to be continuing our Lent series called Upside Down and Inside Out. If you are uh, with us for the first time today, I welcome you. I hope you stop and say something to me on the way out. I'd like to shake your hand, hear a little bit of your story. And we have a little bit of a mug with some information about our own story that I'd like to give to you. If you did not make last week's series or you're going to miss one in this series, you can always log online to our iTunes account or to our website and catch our sermons online. This morning we're going to be looking at Mark 8. And so if you have your Bibles with me, you can, you can open there a while. As some of you know, I've been coaching basketball over the past few months for the East Petersburg Elementary School. Uh, this past week it came to an end. We remain undefeated uh, for the whole time. So I'm really happy about that. Uh, and then afterwards, the guys the, the, and girls that played on the team and their parents actually came over here for ice cream. And we had a really good time of just hanging out in the church fellowship hall. Well, we've been exploring this new series called Upside Down and Inside Out. Lent is a solemn time leading up to Easter Sunday. It's traditionally a season where we focus on prayer, repentance, atonement, and self-denial. Remember the story, we remember the stories of Jesus and remember the path that Jesus walked leading up to the days of the crucifixion. This morning, as part of our series, we're going to be focusing on the aspect of self-denial. This idea that Jesus lived in self-denial and he invites the same to his followers. So I just ask that you just pray, uh, pray with me quickly as we get started here today. Lord God, just come Holy Spirit, be with us today. Be among us. Teach us to walk in your presence, to hear your voice, to know your ways, to deny ourselves in sacrifice for you. Teach us what Lent means, Lord. Amen. So as we get started here at Mark 8, I just want to give you some background information as we begin. Um, There's a whole bunch of stuff happening in this passage, and we don't have time to look at all of it. In the beginning of Mark 8, we find that Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, realizes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus sits there, and he's hanging out with his guys, and he says, who do you say I am? And everyone's kind of timid, and they're just saying, well, I, you know, people say you're a prophet, and... Peter has the guts to kind of speak up and be bold. Now, I don't know if Peter, you know, sometimes he gets a bad rap for all of his boldness. But I I think that a lot of times Jesus actually honored Peter in a different way because Peter always stepped out, right? He was the only one to step out of the boat and actually try to walk on water. So we can make fun of him and, and tease him for being weak in faith. But here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter was also the only one to blurt out, Jesus, you are the Messiah, And so I think Jesus honors Peter's boldness, and I think we see something special with Peter. So in the beginning of Mark 8, we realize that Peter realizes Jesus is the Messiah, and he realizes that through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus realizes the Holy Spirit is at work in Peter, he gives his followers an invitation and a challenge to live like him. Jesus wastes no time. As soon as he sees the Holy Spirit is on Peter, and Peter sees he's the Messiah, he takes no break and just goes right into explaining what must happen and what it means to follow him from here on out. It's a sense of invitation and challenge. Here Jesus is teaching us and his followers then that he says to live like him, to love like him is truly otherworldly. This is the point we pick up in the story. Jesus is teaching his followers what self-denial looks like 
and that it's a must to follow him into the kingdom of God. I invite you to read along with me from the passage. If you don't have a Bible, you can read with me on the screen. You can also turn the, pew, the Red Pew Bible in front of you um, to page 999, and we'll be in Mark 8, 31 to 38. If you don't have a Bible, I'd also be glad to get you one afterwards. He, meaning Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet... <laughs> To gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. It's a pretty heavy passage of self-denial. It's a passage that we can read and we can, we can understand it at face value but maybe don't push into it enough. I'm going to try to push into it a little deeper this morning. Some of you may remember this TV show. It's called Lost in Space. You guys remember this old show? It was black and white. came out September 15, 1965, and uh, it ran for three seasons. It was on reruns when I was a kid, and it was one of my favorite shows. I actually had toys of it, of spaceships, and, and uh, it was a pretty cool show. If you don't remember it, Lost in Space was about the Robinson family. So it was kind of a twist on the Swiss Robinson family. But this time, they're on a spaceship called the Jupiter 2, and they're headed to this faraway moon, and uh, something goes wrong. They're, they're this family that had been raised to be scientists. They're all going to, to fly to uh, Alpha Centauri, and they're going to live there, and they're going to get ready for Earth to start migrating there. And there's... A saboteur on board. He, he sneaks on board. His name's, uh, I can't remember his name now. He's a doctor. And uh, yeah, see, there we go. Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith sneaks on board and he sabotages some stuff. And all of a sudden the ship wrecks. They lose communication. They're not sure where they're at. They think they might be on Mars. And uh, the family grew up on Earth. And by the way, this is supposed to happen in 1997. So, uh, the Robinson family was, was crash-landed in 1997, and no one has heard from them since. So um, they, they grew up on Earth. They grew up wondering what it would be like to live on Alpha Centauri. And here they're crashed on some unknown planet. They have no contact. They have no context of this planet in which they're living on. And they enter this life with a saboteur on board. They, they also have this cool thing, which was this robot. And... Uh, he was really famous for just saying, danger, Will Robinson, danger. You guys know that line? He had these, like, tube, PVC tube arms, and he'd always just, like, flail them like this, and he'd go, danger, Will Robinson, danger. You know, right, Tim? You watch the show. So in some ways, 
we might not be lost in space, but we are called to live in an otherworldly way of self-denial. So making fun of the artwork of this show, today's sermon is called Otherworldly. You have the next slide. It was otherworldly. So we aren't lost in space, but we are looking at the life of Jesus, and it was truly otherworldly. Like lost in space, it is full of saboteurs living by another world's standards in a different reality. It's a journey in this Lent season of self-denial. The only thing that I wish was different about this story and our story is that we had the robot to go along with it. Remember, that's the robot there. It's a <laughs> He'd be, he'd be nice to, to have along just to iron some kinks out for us. When we look at what Jesus is saying in this passage, he's teaching us how to live and love like him with a rea- in a reality that is different. He's teaching us to live in this reality with a mindset that is from another place, from another world. We are crash-landed, and we have to figure out what it means to live in this context with a mindset of a different world. Today we're going to look at ten concepts of learning to live and love like Jesus in this otherworldly sort of way. A way of self-denial in this life and focusing on the other world. If you have your bulletin with you, uh, there are some blanks that you can fill in to kind of keep notes on. I encourage you to look at them this week and kind of reflect on this passage. Because you're not going to get everything this morning. It's, It's better if we look at it throughout the week as well. So the first point is this. Jesus made it clear that his holy way was one that is often rejected by worldly wise elders, politically charged spiritual leaders, and legalistic experts. The first thing we see from Jesus came from the first verse of the passage we read. That he had to be rejected by everyone who thought they were wise in this world. We learn those who think they are wise leaders in this world are actually directly opposite to the wisdom of the kingdom. Living otherworldly means reversing how we see wisdom. How many times do we think we are wise and we are thinking godly? Or we have somebody in mind who is thinking wise and thinking godly? And yet we are viewing these with the mindset of God, with ourselves and not the mindset of God. I wonder how many of those times that we think something is wise or we are wise, that we are actually in direct opposition to God's will or to what the kingdom is actually wanting to do. We must also learn to disregard human concern and reasoning, which only distracts us from God's mindset and the work of the kingdom. Peter's, Peter's knows how the Messiah is going to work. He, he knows what Jesus has to do. And when Jesus starts saying, I got to be rejected, I'm going to be taken away, Peter's like, no, no, no. I understand how the wisdom of this world works, Jesus. I'm going to pull you aside and pump your brakes and tell you, there's no way this is how it's going down. You're going to lead us into this more triumphant thing. You're going to overthrow the brokenness. You're going to heal it. I mean, that's why we're following you, right? Like, you, you're coming here to fix it. Now you're telling us they're actually going to break you? And so, Peter just gets mad and he begins to rebuke Jesus. The scripture actually says that he began to rebuke him. And at that point, we see Jesus go from the hippie that we often like to view him at and tell Peter how it's really going to be. And he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the mindset of God. You have the mindset of humans. You are thinking like this world, but that's not what I am. I am otherworldly. I am from a kingdom that is not this one. You are still thinking like a human. Haven't you learned anything from following me? 
That's what we see happening here. We must learn to disregard human concern and reasoning, which only distracts us from God's mindset and the work of his kingdom. Peter definitely thinks he knows the way the kingdom should work. But uh, it's not the way Jesus wants to move. How many times do we tell ourselves that something is not of God because we look at it through human reasoning and through our wisdom and say, no, there's no way that can be of God or there's no way God would want you to do that in your life. Right? Parents can be guilty of this or, or pastors or teachers when you're meeting with somebody and you hear somebody's vision you say, no, you know, trust me. Through my eyes, I'm telling you, there's no way that's God. Sometimes we might be right. And sometimes I wonder how often we've had the wrong mindset or the wrong concerns or the wrong reasonings in our minds when we say those things. God doesn't fit this world's wisdom. God's kingdom doesn't fit this world's concepts. And it looks a lot different. How many times have we said, there's no way that can be of God when it really is? That's a question I wonder. We must also be willing to surrender any sense of claim we have on our own life to dangerously follow Jesus. Jesus continues to Peter and to the disciples. He kind of, he rebukes Peter and he turns to everyone that's hanging around there and he says, if any of you really want to be my follower, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. That's a line we say in church a lot and we repeat a lot, but I wonder if we realize what it means. In today's time, it would be like us carrying an electric chair on our back, or a noose. It's a murdering capital punishment weapon in which Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, if you want to live and love like me, you have to live so dangerously that the oppression of death, the oppression of capital punishment, the threat of authorities, the threat of those who think they are right, weighs upon your back as if it's going to be the end any moment. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We must willingly surrender any sense of claim we have on our own life to dangerously follow Jesus. We often say, well, shouldn't drive through that side of town with your doors unlocked. Shouldn't drive over there at night or do this or you shouldn't go into that establishment because of the dangers of it. But in reality, following Jesus is dangerous. Jesus wasn't afraid to walk in to those places or into those contexts, and he knew he carried a murdering weapon of capital punishment on his back. How many times have we talked about our comforts as blessings of God and the hard times as Satan's opportunities in our life? And maybe it was the other way around all the time. Jesus compares following and living and loving like him to the threat of death and trouble and danger And we like to view God's blessings as comfort and success and housing and the things that we want to achieve and accomplish in life. Life is truly found when we intentionally abandon our lives to work for the good news and the goodness of the kingdom. Jesus says those who are willing to throw their life away, those who are willing to lay it down to follow me will find their life. What's he saying? He's saying those who are willing to give it all up to say, you know what? I don't need the wisdom of this world. I don't need the context of this world. I don't need to achieve things in this world. I don't need to be successful in this world. I don't need to worry about the people who think they're wise in this world. I just need to follow you, Jesus. Those people are the ones that are going to find their life, their true life, their true identity. 
Life is truly found when we intentionally, not unintentionally, not by mistake, hit rock bottom. When we intentionally hit rock bottom or abandon our lives. I love this word abandoned. This, this idea that we just, we get up from who we are as Americans, as, as Christians, as people who are Mennonites, as people who live in East Petersburg, Mannheim, Mount Joy, Elizabethtown, Lancaster, wherever. And we willingly abandon that. We just step out of that. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Here we are. This is who we are. Instead of trying to fit Jesus in a crack, all of a sudden we're just saying, nope, leave my shell over there. Danger, Will Robinson, danger, right? That's, that's the thing that happens in our heads. There's no way God would want that of me. Laying down our life for the gospel, for the good news, and the goodness of the kingdom will only bring life. How many times do we pursue achievement over what it means for the kingdom to be achieved? Pursuing all the pleasures and successes of this life, those of good and bad intention, will only imprison our souls. Jesus seemingly adds another layer to this uh, idea of abandoning our lives. He says if we pursue life here, it will only imprison our souls. In which case, nothing can be exchanged for it. He says in the scripture, if you, if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul, what can you give in exchange for it? Focusing on this life, focusing on the achievements of this world and not the achievements of the kingdom adds up a debt, an oppressive debt in which Jesus says nothing can be exchanged. In this life, we either show our faith dependent on God or, they show, or our lives show that we've worldly achieved but been ashamed of him and his ways. It's easy for us to read that verse. It says, anyone that's ashamed of me uh, and my name in this adulterous generation, blah, blah, blah. You know, as long as we don't say what Peter said, as long as we don't do what Peter did, you know, Peter, Peter was scared in the public square to go... Jesus, you know, I don't know him. I wasn't following him because Peter was looking out for himself, right? That's how we view this scripture, this idea that as long as we don't do what Peter did, you know, when publicly asked or we, we, we view um, these, these movies about the end times uh, left behind and things like that, if somebody was holding a gun to your head, we've asked these things as kids and of our kids, and, and would you be willing to change your life? That's, that's how we translate this, this verse. Would you be willing to deny your faith if you had a gun to your head? But in all honesty, Jesus is not talking about verbalness, uh, verbal words and verbal usage. He's actually saying this. He's saying, lay down your life. And so we need to view this through that context as well. He's saying the lives we live either show our faith is dependent on God or they show that we've worldly achieved, but we've been ashamed of him and his ways. Our life is our words. Our life, the way we live it, the way we, we uh, create culture around us through our lives is, what we, what, what, uh, is how we say what we believe of God and how dependent we are on him. Ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves this. How do our actions and pursuits show this way of otherworldly living? If Jesus is from our own co a different context, a different world, and we are trying to, you know, live where we're crashed here, and we got saboteurs and Dr. Smiths and robots yelling danger, how 
do our lives show that we truly are otherworldly? I asked a question this morning in our intergenerational Sunday school that said, if you look at a person's life, a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, and you look at somebody who is an atheist or doesn't have the Holy Spirit, what are the first things of difference that you notice? What differences do you notice? Or do you not notice anything? Are we achieving this? Are we pushing for the same achievements? Are we uh, thriving on the same enjoyments? What's different? How do our actions and pursuits show this way of otherworldly living? Learning to live in love like Jesus with holiness and surrender will be rewarded eternally with the Father's glory and his presence. Jesus says when God comes back with the angels, those who have successfully picked up their cross, laid their lives down, followed me, will be rewarded with the Father's glory. We learn the same thing of the Holy Spirit as the helper, that the Father's glory and his presence is with those who are willing to live with holiness and surrender. If you want to know God's will for your life, surrender your life. To live, uh, to living like Jesus is truly out of this world. This otherworldly life makes us more like illegal aliens and citizens in the world at hand. Living like Jesus is truly out of this world. Amen. It's out of this world. But, but in reality, it should look that odd. To live otherworldly simply means this. It means we're to resemble and to be devoted in a world to come through our physical, intellectual, and imaginative pursuits. I looked up the word otherworldly. It's, it's one word. And I looked it up in a dictionary, and this is how it describes it. To belong to another world uh, and to have all of your physical, intellectual, and imaginative pursuits captivated by it. So, to live otherworldly means we are to resemble and to be devoted to a world to come through our physical, intellectual, and imaginative pursuits. Sometimes we realize that it means we've got to give up our Sunday mornings and our Wednesday nights, and we, we know that it means that we have to live a certain way, to tithe a certain way, to do these things. But that word that is underlined there, imaginative, we forget that one sometimes. Every ounce of our creativity, our minds, our thoughts must be captivated, not by this world, but of the other world. So I leave you with this. Let's eagerly lay down our Americanism, our comfort, our desires, so that we can truly be otherworldly. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. You know, the Holy Spirit's at work, and Peter goes, yeah, man, I, I see that you're the Messiah. And it's good if we could sit here this morning and see, you know, we, we see the story in the Bible. Jesus is the Messiah. We see that. But if that hasn't captivated every aspect of who we are yet and changed us with great detail and allowed us to lay our lives down and to step out of our Americanism, our, our desire for comfort, our desire for success, for achievement, then it means nothing. Our faith means nothing if we haven't learned to lay those things down and have every aspect captivated by what it means to pick up our cross and follow him. This Lent season, we focus a lot on laying down distractions. 
Perhaps there's no distraction bigger than our own life, our own comforts, and our own focuses. 